Amen. Amen. What a wonderful time singing wonderful songs about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. It's wonderful to hear our team. I love how they're able, like you still see the emotion. You know they're, they're singing to an empty room, right? But it doesn't feel like that. And I love how our, our worship team has done just a fabulous job continuing to maintain. It's hard. It's hard. I, I feel bad. I used to be preaching to an empty room. Now I get the chance to preach to a, a much fuller room than before, but they're still singing to an empty room, but they're doing a great, great job as they do it, serving us extremely well as we worship the risen Jesus Christ. Let's give another round of applause just for what they do. We love what they do, and I know you at home appreciate them as well. As we continue our series in John chapter 11, I want to ask you this kind of a really serious question. I really just want to jump into maybe something really uh, messy, really messy. And here's what I mean by that. I want you to entertain this question in your mind, maybe just kind of examine the last year or so. And I want to ask you this question. Have you ever been disappointed in God? Have you ever been disappointed in in God. Now you may feel, wait, Pastor, are the deacons going to hear me if I say yes? Are they going to run and, and tackle me, right? Are they going to make me tithe more money or something like that if I get the wrong answer? No, I want you to be honest. You can be honest just in yourself. Have you ever been disappointed with God? Have you ever had a time in your life, whatever it is, and you found yourself thinking this thought? Maybe not actively putting it together. But passively, maybe this question just comes upon you, this emotion comes upon you, and you say to yourself, God, you should have done things differently. God, you could have done things differently. If you were to give God a performance evaluation just over the last year of his involvement in your life, how would that look? Now, of course, it would be really awkward Invite God into your office to shuffle your papers and say, okay, performance review time. Right? That'd be really weird. But if you were to do that, do you, do you think that evaluation would show signs of disappointment? I think we can all say, yes, we've been disappointed with God at times in our lives. I know for myself, I think the greatest disappointment I've ever felt in my life with God happened in 2008. In 2008, it was just a really trying time for my family. I had lost my, my grandfather, my grandmother, and my stepfather all within one, about one year. And it got to the point, just if I'm just being honest with you, that I dreaded the phone call. I, I, I didn't want to see my family's name on the caller ID. I didn't want to see it. I, I got so accustomed to the routine of bad news, I dreaded phone calls. And in that kind of environment, I was excited to finally be somebody who could deliver some good news. I remember calling all of my family. I, at that point, I was in Louisville, Kentucky. My family was still all in California. And I remember calling my family and delivering to them, finally, good family news. And I told them, hey, Lindsay and I are expecting our first child. It was wonderful. It was awesome. It was exciting to deliver good news to a family that had only heard bad news after bad news after bad news after bad news. 
Funeral after funeral after funeral, bad doctor's appointment after bad doctor's appointment over and over and over again. And to give up, to give this news felt like a great gift to them. And it hurt me so bad that that good news didn't last very long. Several months later, I had to call them again. Call them again and tell them that we lost the baby. And I remember us going to that appointment in the morning, not hearing a heartbeat. And then I remember them sending us home. And I remember at night is when Lindsay had to come back for a procedure that would safely remove this child who no longer had life from her body. And in between that morning appointment and that night procedure, or that afternoon procedure, we went to a friend's house. Went to a friend's house just to grieve and just to pray. And I remember sitting in their living room, praying the most emotional prayer I've ever prayed in my life. Believing that God could step in still. God could step in and restore life. God could do that. And I remember in the emotion telling God, if you need an exchange, if the economy of spirituality or in a spiritual sense is one life for another, then take mine. I've lived enough. I'll gladly give my life to restore life to that wonderful child. And God did not answer that prayer. And I was disappointed that day. Extremely disappointed in God. And we've all had those moments. All of us. Maybe this year or the year prior. Or we're getting to a moment like that. A moment where we're going to feel incredibly disappointed in God's plan. We're going to have moments where we ask for healing, we don't get healing. We were asked life to be restored, and we don't get life restored. And in those times where we don't experience healing, when healing is absent, hope is not. Even when we don't experience healing, where God doesn't restore life, where God doesn't step in, where God doesn't take away cancer, where God doesn't repair the marriage, where God doesn't bring back the child, when God doesn't change things like you would want him to, even in those moments where God doesn't answer your prayer, there can still be great, indestructible hope. And we're going to see that in our passage this morning. We're going to see a woman who is crippled by her disappointment in Jesus, and yet she still maintains belief in Jesus. She's disappointed, and yet she still believes at the same time, and then Jesus is going to offer her something. And we think of John chapter 11, we naturally think that he's going to offer her resurrection life. He's going to resurrect her brother who has died. And it's true that we'll get there, but that's next week. But what God gives this week is greater than the healing. Because the healing and the miracle are temporary. Lazarus, her brother, who is now dead in our passage, will rise again, but guess what? He will die again. And even this great, wonderful miracle is not unique to Jesus. We see it in the Old Testament. We see Old Testament prophets raise people from the dead, only to die again, but it's still a great miracle. But there's something that Jesus offers in our passage today that is greater than any healing. What he offers is hope, an eternal hope, an indestructible hope, a hope that will never die. Go to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We're going to start with verse 
17. If you're only going to write down one thing, if you're only going to remember one thing, I want you to write this down. This is the big idea of our passage today. I think the main idea of Jesus' teaching here, and I want to summarize it just in a very simple sentence for you, kind of a tweet, if you will, something you could post positively on your social media, right? Because I know you're looking for those things. The big idea for this morning is this. Hope is better than healing. Hope is better than healing. Healing is wonderful. Healing is awesome. Healing will happen in our passage. Healing will happen in John chapter 11. But the hope that Jesus offers is so much better. And I would say the healing is actually secondary to the hope that Jesus offers in John chapter 11. So let's start with verse 17. John chapter 11, verse 17. Here's what you're going to see. Let me set it up for you. In the first part, we're going to see great disappointment. Great disappointment that healing hasn't happened. God hasn't done what he could do, and God hasn't done what he should do. And Martha is going to express this, and she's probably going to express something that you felt in your life, or will feel in your life. She's going to express disappointment with Jesus. And then Jesus is going to offer her something better than any healing, better than bringing her brother back to life. Jesus is going to offer her hope. So let's start. Verse 17 of John chapter 11. Let me build the setting here of this great disappointment that Jesus has not healed. Look at verse 17. It says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus, this is his friend, who we know was sick from the beginning of John chapter 11 and who has passed away. Jesus has now just arrived in the town and he's arrived at terrible at a terrible time. <laughs> Jesus didn't get there quick enough. Look how John expresses that to us. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now this is significant because this shows the severity of the situation. This shows the degree of disappointment. This shows the despair that has set in. Four days this boy has been dead. Four days. Now, I think that stings a little bit for Mary and Martha. Why is that? Because they sent out a messenger hoping that Jesus could come in time to heal their brother. But the messenger didn't get there really in time. Pastor Larry last week kind of did the math for you a little bit. Jesus is two days journey away, and he delayed two days. So from when he heard the news to when he's there is four days. And we're just told here that he's been in the tomb for four days. What does that mean? That means when that messenger probably got to Jesus, told him that Lazarus was sick, he either died the next hour or within a several hours or could have died just the moment before. How heartbreaking is that? I think Pastor Larry did a great job of expressing of how that messenger would have felt if he returned back to Mary and Martha right after delivering the news. He would get there maybe two days after meeting with Jesus. And by the time he got back, Lazarus would have been dead for two days. Imagine being that messenger. Hey, I finally got to Jesus. He gets back to Mary and Martha. Oh, he's been dead for two days. And that messenger will probably think in his mind, man, I missed it. Mary and Martha may have thought in their minds, if only we had diagnosed things earlier, saw the symptoms as more severe, if only we would have gotten to Jesus earlier. But nay, we were just too late. Something else, though, not only is it disappointing for Mary and Martha, but right now, the kind of um, 
opportunity for hope is, 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 is over. See, in the first century world, they believed that the soul would depart from the body at death, but would stay around for a little bit. Would stay around for about three days. And the idea is the soul would kind of just hover over the body until the complexion of the body changed about day three. And at day three, when he realizes, ooh, I need a little blush here, right? You're not looking so good. The moment the color in the face changed, then the soul knew there's no hope of resuscitation. There's no hope of reentry. It's over. It's a done deal. So now we're at day four. This is the moment where the door for anything remarkable to happen seems to have already shut. This is the, the moment of permanence, right? You felt this if you've ever grieved somebody, right? I don't know why in our minds, no matter if we see somebody lose their life in front of us, we watch them pass into the next. Even those first couple days, you know it, right? You, 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 you see them on the roadside as you're driving. Wait, 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 right? You feel like you hear their voice in the house when you know it's not there. It's like you're coming to grips with the permanence of the reality you now have to live in. You have to live without this person. That's where we are. Martha and Mary are now feeling that kind of despair. There's no hope for any healing. There's no hope for a resuscitation. Spirit is gone. It's passed on. It's over. You can feel it. And I think many feel it. Not just Mary and Martha. I think many feel it. Look at the next verse, verse 18. It says, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. It seems like Lazarus must have been a man of great significance because it says many people are now coming to mourn with Mary and Martha, which in that first century world was like a seven day kind of mourning. Those who had just lost somebody would sit at the house and comforters would come with food and they would come in and they would comfort the people that are staying at the house. And you have Mary and Martha grieving their brother, their brother probably being the primary earner in the home. So they're losing not only their brother, they're also probably losing their financial stability. And they're probably a very prominent family. We see this later when when perfume is offered to Jesus by one of the sisters. But it seems like they're a prominent family. Why? Because many are coming. Many are coming. So now you have this kind of idea of despair is now compounding. It's not just shared by Mary and Martha. Now the town is grieving. And maybe they know that Jesus has been called and Jesus didn't come in time. So you now have this crowd of people disappointed with what has happened. And what we'll get now is Martha running to Jesus, expressing her disappointment. Look at the next verse. Verse 19. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha, or Martha and Mary, to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. So this is significant. Why? She shouldn't be leaving. She shouldn't be going. This is not her role. This is, this is out of custom. This isn't, this isn't right. This isn't the routine. This isn't the rhythm of grief in the first century world for a Jew. She's supposed to stay at home. Mary's the one in the right spot right now. 
Martha, for some reason, is motivated to meet Jesus. She's not going to wait for Jesus to come to her house. Now, we can speculate. Why is that? My speculation is, is because she's so disappointed in Jesus. She's not happy with Jesus. She wants to tell him. And look at how she tells him. She uses a word I'm sure many of us have used. Many of us have probably used this year. It's the first word she delivers to Jesus. Often when we see people interact with Jesus, we see titles. Names of respect and honor. Not for Martha right now. Not in the middle of the grieving season. Not four days into this. What are the first words she delivers to Jesus? Lord, well, there's, there's a title of respect. But look at the next word. If you had been here. If you would have been here. Man, we've all said the if, right? We do it to ourselves. If I just wouldn't have let him go out, And if I just would have called, if I just would have called the day before, he wouldn't have made that choice. If I just would have stopped, I saw him the day before. I saw him the day before he took his life. If I just would have had a conversation with him, if I just would have read the signs right, if I, if I just would have seen that he was selling off his things, that a week before he took his life, it seemed like he had a smile on his face, like he found a solution to his depression. If I only would have seen, if I only would have known, I could have stopped it. We do those ifs to ourselves, right? We, we, we in our grief, will experience great guilt on ourselves. We'll lay all the ifs at ourselves. We'll do it to God, too. We do the same thing that, that, that Martha did to Jesus. If you would have been there, God, if you would have showed up, this wouldn't have happened. Why did that drunk driver just happen to go across that intersection at that time? Why? When, when she's on her way to a prayer meeting, sees a green light, everything's okay. But the driver of the other car can't see straight. Made one, two, three bad choices in one night. And their life's over. We play the if game, don't we? We play it with ourselves, play it with others, play it with the situation, and we play it with God. I mean, he's all-powerful, right? He's ever-present, Right? He could have stopped it. And that could, in our mind, turns to should. You should have done better. What does Jesus do with the disappointment? Does Jesus feel disrespected by it? Is he just going to push it away? Is this a rebuke of Jesus? Is, he con is, is Martha condemning Jesus? No, I don't think so. 
I don't think we should read her response as a response of rebuke, condemnation, or even disbelief. I think we should read it as disappointment. Why? Well, the first word she said to him was what? Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. There's still belief there. Do you see it? Because if you would have been here, he would not have died. I believe you would have healed him. I believe you could have stopped death. Now, you didn't, but I still believe you can, and I believe you should have, but you didn't. But there's still belief. Do you see this kind of tandem response here, this tension in her? There is disappointment, and there is belief at the same time. The next verse expresses really the very same thing, verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. What is she saying there? When you pray, man, things are different. Even now I know that if you ask, God will give. Now we want to be careful here because we don't want to read this as if she's anticipating that her brother's going to be resurrected that day. Right? I think in that case, if we come to that conclusion, it's because we're reading the ending into the beginning. We already know what's going to happen. But I don't think that's what she's saying here. I don't think she's saying, hey, even now I think you're going to do something. I don't think that. The reason I don't think that is we jump just to verse 39. When Jesus does approach the tomb of Lazarus, it's Martha who says, let's not go in there. Verse 39 of John chapter 11, it says that Jesus said, take away the stone. Here comes Martha. Martha, the one we're reading about, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Don't go in there. The expression of smell here is extremely strong. She's saying, this is not a good idea. Even there, I feel like she doesn't anticipate that her brother is going to be, if I can use this term when it comes to resurrection, healed. She's disappointed. Jesus not healed her brother. He could have, maybe he should have, but he didn't. Now, how is Jesus going to respond to that? How is Jesus going to receive that? Is the disappointment of Martha going to be disrespectful to him? I think if we're honest, we've all been, yes, disappointed with God. But I think even in that disappointment, we've had, we have experienced belief at the same time. Just like Martha here. Martha still believes that Jesus is a healer. That when he prays, things change. I know just a couple years ago, I experienced this very same thing. Feelings of disappointment, yet feelings of belief at the same time. Just about two years ago, my father was in the, or my father-in-law was in the ICU. And many of the experience that people are having right now with COVID and ICU and ventilators is an experience that we had as a family just two years ago. We all got the flu around Christmas time, Merry Christmas. John got the flu too, but for some reason, what John experienced, what we experienced, was not even close to the same. We all got better. John did not get better. Influenza turned into double pneumonia, then he became sepsis, then he had kidney failure and liver failure, all of these different things. It just started to dominate to the point where he was in an ICU room in a medically induced coma on a ventilator. And if you know anything about those factors right there in the ICU, the odds of him ever getting better are incredibly low. Incredibly low. 
And I remember the first day going into the ICU. The first day seeing my father-in-law in that bed. And I just, I went to his bedside. I grabbed his hand. Of course, he couldn't respond. He's in a coma. And I knelt down to the ground, and I prayed the, probably the second most emotional prayer I've ever prayed in my life. And I prayed, God, would you restore his life? God, would you heal him? I believe you can, Lord. Please, please, please don't disappoint. Now, praise God, he did it. He did it. John got better. John's alive. John's still with us. John went camping with his grandkids just a couple weeks ago or a week ago. It's great to have him back, but if I'm honest, when I was praying that prayer in the ICU room, holding his hand, was there any doubt in me? Yes, there was. What if God doesn't heal? What if God doesn't restore? I remember ending the prayer, wiping my tears away and sitting next to my brother-in-law. We were both sitting on the, the floor because the rest of the family had the chairs, the girls had the chairs, and so we were sitting on the floor at the foot kind of, a, of John's bed. And I remember talking to my brother-in-law, and I, I remember saying, man, you know, I believe God can do miracles. I do. And I've seen him. I've seen him do some crazy things, man. I know he can. And I'm asking that he will, because all the odds are against John, all of them. I believe God can do a miracle. And I remember telling my brother-in-law, but I always wish that he would do one more than he does. Just one more. What's going on there? Is there belief? There's belief. God, you can do this. God, I'm asking you that you will. But is there also underlining under that, the idea of disappointment? What if you don't, God? What if you don't heal? What will I do? Will I like that? I'll be happy with that. I'll be pleased with that. I think I'd be very much like Martha. God, if you would have stepped in, he wouldn't have died. What does Jesus do? He feels the disappointment. He feels the grief. And he doesn't push it away. He's not disrespected by her disappointment. Look what Jesus says to her. She says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Now, again, if we're knowing the end, we're reading into this, we're thinking, here's Jesus explaining resurrection is going to happen. But how Martha would have received this as a hearer in the first century world, she would just receive this as just common condolence. She's probably heard these words already. Many have come to her as, as Orthodox Jews, understanding Daniel chapter 12, a prophet in the Old Testament who spoke of a last day resurrection, where we will rise again in the last days. She's probably thinking of just that. We know she's thinking just that because that's exactly what she responds back to Jesus. Look at what Martha says. 
I know, this is verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's just receiving Jesus' condolences. She's heard this before. I'm sorry for your loss. Right? The thing we say every time somebody loses somebody. I'm sorry for your loss. I'm praying that God give you a peace that transcends all understanding. Right? All of those things. And those are good things, but they're repeated to us. And sometimes they become a little sterile to us. She receives these condolences. But Jesus is not speaking like everybody else has spoken. He's not just going to leave her with those words and then go away. No, no, no. Jesus means more. More than just this future abstract hope that her brother will rise again. Look at Jesus' response. And he's not going to talk about Lazarus anymore. He's not going to reference Lazarus anymore. Now his concern is with who? Martha. Martha, look at me. Look at me, Martha. Let's not talk about what didn't happen. Let me tell you what I can do for you. Let me tell you what I can offer. And look at Jesus' response. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those first two words, I am. Why is Jesus using that? Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, like he said in John chapter 5, I will resurrect. I will give life. That's not what he said there. Jesus said very similar language in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the Son of Man who gives the bread of life. And then he says, I am the bread of life. Do you notice the difference there? One, Jesus says, I can give a gift. I can give the bread of life. John chapter 5, Jesus says, I can resurrect. But then Jesus is saying something different when he says, I am the bread of life. And I am the resurrection and the life. What is Jesus saying there? I not only can give a gift, I'm the only one who can give that gift. Martha, you have to center your hope on me. I'm the only one who can give it. I'm the only one who can do anything for you. I'm the only one who can give you hope. I'm not just a healer. That's what she believes in the beginning. Jesus saying, I'm the only hope giver. I am the resurrection and the life. I don't just resurrect and give life as if there's somebody else who can do the same. No, I'm it. You have to center your hope on me. And then Jesus gives her these kind of two phrases. I'm the resurrection and the life. And we shouldn't take those two and slam them together as if they mean the same thing. They don't mean the same thing. They're connected, but they don't mean the same thing. And I think the next verse unpacks these two ideas. That first idea, I am the resurrection. What is Jesus talking about there? I think Jesus is talking about Daniel chapter 12. I think Jesus is talking about the hope that Martha has already expressed about the last days. He, he, she's thinking and he is talking about a life after death. Look how we see this in verse 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. This next phrase, I think, connects that idea of resurrection. Whoever believes in me, now notice the timeline here, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. What is Jesus talking about? There is life after death. Martha already believes that, right? She's already good with that. She's comfortable with that. Yeah, my brother will raise up on the last day, just like the prophet Daniel told us. 
But Jesus, Jesus doesn't leave her there. He also says, I'm the life. What is Jesus doing there? Here's what I think Jesus is doing. Is Jesus saying, hey, hey not just what happens after death, but what happens before death? Yes, your brother will rise again, and there will be a life after death. But then he says, look at this phrase, I am the life, and I think it connects to the next verse, or the next phrase he says in verse 26. And notice again the timeline. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall what? Never die. Wait a second here. What has Jesus done there? Now, at first it sounds a little confusing because you just said that somebody dies. Now you're saying nobody dies. Jesus, what are you talking about here? Right, but we know that the Bible, when it speaks of death, is not talking about just your heart stopping, your brain stop working, your lungs stop filling. It's not just talking about that. That's part of the definition of death, but the death is much bigger than that. Because we know death was experienced by Adam and Eve before they actually died. When they sinned and they fell, God told them, you would surely die. And they did die, even though they were alive. How did they die? Because they were banished from their creator. Abandoned, in a sense, from their creator. They were separated from him. This is true death. Sometimes the Bible refers to it as the second death. This is the full experience of death. The full experience of death is not just that this stops working, this stops working, these lungs stop filling, but that the spirit dies in the sense that the soul is abandoned by its creator, permanently separated from its maker. That is death. And Jesus says here, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you life that passes through death. I'm not only going to give you afterlife, I'm not just going to give you this future, which I feel like what Mary is doing is she's giving kind of this very abstract view. Yeah, I know my brother will raise on the last day. I know that, but that's not helping her right now. And Jesus says, I'm giving you more than that, much more than that. I'm going to give you resurrection, life after death, but I'm going to give you a life a life that allows you to right now have a hope that is indestructible, that can pass through death. Everyone who lives and believes shall never die. This very similar words what Jesus said in chapter 8. Just flip to John chapter 8, verse 51. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, he shall, or you, he will never see death. What is he talking about there? Again, He's talking about right now. He's talking about present. You will never see death. I can give you a life right now. You can experience eternal life right now that when you do die, you don't truly see death. You're not abandoned by God. You join God. You have communion with God. You know him. Now your body's in the ground. But that's what that future hope is about because my soul is more alive than it's ever, ever, ever been. And now I'm in bliss with my creator, but I'm not fully experiencing it yet because my body is in the ground. But in the last days, he'll resurrect that thing and then he'll put my soul and my body and then I'll have resurrection life. But I've always been alive before the resurrection life. You see the hope that Jesus is giving here? And it's before he ever does anything. He hasn't even got to the tomb of Lazarus yet. 
And then he focuses Mary's attention. And look what he says, or sorry, Martha's attention. Last of verse 26. Do you believe this? What is he talking about? Is he saying, do you believe that I'll raise your brother? No. What is he saying? Martha, it's very nice. I feel respected. First time you saw me, you called me Lord. You were a little disappointed. But you acknowledge that I could have healed your brother. You acknowledge that I have a pretty dynamic prayer life, that if I pray, God the Father hears and answers. Martha, I'm encouraged by your belief. You believe I'm a healer. But what Jesus has just given has nothing to do with healing now. Now it has to do with hope. And Jesus is saying, Martha, do you believe, not that I'm just a healer, but that I'm the only hope giver? Do you believe? And then look at this response. Ladies, this should excite you right here. There have been some really great confessions in the Gospel of John, outstanding ones. John the Baptist has talked about how Jesus is the Son of God. Nathaniel, who became a disciple, said the very same thing. Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Holy One of God. But then we get to Martha. And i got to be honest with you, she outperforms them all. I would argue that this is the greatest confession in this gospel to this point by far. Do you believe, Martha, and know how scandalous it would be to have the greatest confession in the gospel so far come from the lips of a woman? Come on, ladies, you got to be like, preach, right? This is the most glorious achievement and acknowledgement of any woman in history, right here in the center of the gospel of John. Look at what she says. Martha, do you believe? Here's what she says. Yes, Lord, I believe. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now, again, we know the end of the book. If you go to John chapter 20, this is what John wants. This is the whole point why he writes. Think of the phrases that she uses. She says, yes, Lord, you are the Christ the Son of the living God, the one who is to come into the world. Why is John even writing his book? John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe, listen, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Those are the things that come out of her mouth. The whole point of the book is that people would confess like Martha confessed at that moment. And notice her faith started before the healing ever came. Her faith was real before her brother was ever resurrected. She believed in this even when she was still disappointed. Her brother's still dead. Her brother's still in the tomb. Four days have passed. His soul is not coming back. We were too late with the message. And yet when Jesus sits with Martha, I imagine right next to her, and as he places his hand on her shoulder and looks right into her eyes and says, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? That even though a man may die, yet shall he live. And if anyone lives and believes in me, he will never see death. He will never taste death. You will never experience death. Do you believe I am the only hope 
giver. And she responds to Jesus' words and not Jesus' miracle. She's still disappointed that her brother is not alive. But she still believes. Outstanding, amazing, incredible belief. Hope is better than healing. Even better than this healing, if we could call it healing. I don't know if resurrection qualifies as healing. It seems bigger than that, doesn't it? But even that healing is temporary. Lazarus would die again. Everybody who's been resurrected in the Gospels or, or, or even in the Old Testament, they died again. Even that amazing feat was temporary. What Jesus talks about is eternal. It's forever, and that's why hope is better. And because we have this hope, we can maintain belief even in seasons of great disappointment. Even when we know things could have been better, even when we believe maybe things should have been better, even when we feel inside that God has disappointed us, we can still believe. And I think you need to hear that God is not disrespected by your disappointment. Was Martha disrespecting Jesus? No, I don't think so. Did Jesus feel disrespected by her disappointment? If you run to God and you put your finger in his chest, as it were, and told him, if you would have been here, this mess wouldn't have happened. Is God going to strike you down? Oh, friend, at the very middle of the Bible, there are these things called the Psalms. They are songs. Majority of them penned by the great King David. And if you ever want to see somebody get a little emotional with their disappointment and frustration with God, read David's Songs, But David is not the primary author of those songs. God is. God inspired David. Think of how silly it would be for God to sanction worship to him that disrespects him. He says, I want to hear it. You tell me. You tell me you're disappointed. You tell me you're hurt. You tell me you're lament. You tell me how disgusted you are with how things have laid out. You tell me how you think it could have been better. You tell me how it should have been better. And then watch the hope I can give you. An indestructible hope. I think this is very important for us as we prepare our hearts for Easter. You see, Easter to me is a bittersweet day. It's sweet. Why? Oh. I mean, it's a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It, it highlights the hope that I have that in the future, I will be raised again. It is the day that we celebrate that we could have eternal life now, a hope that is indestructible, that could pass through death and any trial. It's a great day. I'm alive. And even when I die, I'm still alive. And then one day, I'll be fully alive. That's a great day. That's the best day. But it's also bitter. How, how is it bitter? Pastor Matt and I were talking about this as we were reflecting on the hope of Easter. And I said I had moments of disappointment with God. 
But I would say, if God were to give me a do-over, if I only got one moment, one moment, to do things differently, it would be to give the hope of Easter to my father. You see, my father died of a heroin overdose when I was 12. And I became a Christian when I was 13. Now, my job is not to figure out why that's the timetable, why that's the plan. Pastor Larry and I were even talking about that, the mystery of what that is. And we just have to leave that as a mystery, a question mark that I just got to leave at the feet of Jesus. But Easter is bitter to me because I never got to share the hope of Easter with my father. And I would say that's been the greatest struggle, especially in the very beginning of my Christian life for several years. And I think at Easter, I'm reminded that I may have to feel that feeling for my other friends and family members who aren't yet following Jesus. And I don't want that. I don't want to feel that feeling again. You don't want to feel that feeling again. You don't want to feel that feeling at all. We've been praying as a church for one person, one person, one friend or family member who's not yet following Jesus. We've been praying and praying, and I know you've been praying. And my encouragement to you as we kind of close out, I think we only have like two or three days left, is let these last ones just be real. Just open up. Tell him. He already knows it. There's no mysteries to it. If you've ever felt frustrated with the plan of God, disappointed with his timetable, tell him. He already knows it. He's not going to be updating his journal like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Hold on, let me write that down. He's not going to do that. He knows it. But the only way you can get through it is if you tell him. Father, I don't know why you're waiting so long. I try, and 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 my words just seem to fall to the floor. Father, quicken their heart. Let them know Easter. Let them know a hope that can pass through death. Let them know the hope that they'll have life after death. Father, would you move? I am groaning for them. Paul says in Romans chapter 9 that he is unceasing anguish in his heart and sorrow. For who? For those that don't yet know Christ. Be honest with God. Your prayer may get a little bit messy this week, and that's okay. Because I think just like Martha, God will meet you in that mess. He won't be disrespected by your disappointment but he'll remind you of the hope that you have in the one who can fairly call himself the resurrection and the life. Now, maybe you're here or maybe you're watching. You don't have the hope that's wrapped up in this passage. Maybe you have thought in your life the greatest thing that God can do is to heal. Take away some disease, take away some ailment, take away some Hardship, the greatest move of God is to give you comfort, ease, relaxation, to eliminate debt, to eliminate cancer, to do those things, to bring back loved ones, to, to, to mend marriages, all those things. 
And friend, God can do all of those things. But there is a greater gift that you cannot miss. You're asking for trinkets if that's all you ask from God. Because he can give you hope, indestructible hope. And he wants to give it to you today. He wants to hear those words that he heard from Martha at the very end. Yes, Lord, I believe. Maybe right now you're struggling with how, how does my life have a happily ever after? Right, how do I live this present life not knowing how it ends? You can know how it ends. Jesus Christ has told you how it ends. And I hope that you with Martha say the same words. Yes, Lord, I believe. And if you want to know how to say that, how to communicate that to God, I'm going to be right outside here at the end of the service. You just come find me. You come find me, and we'll talk about how you can have the same experience that Martha had. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I thank you for the hope that you give us in Jesus Christ, better than, than any healing, better than the resurrection from the dead is the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, would you give me a peace to be okay with your timetable and your plan? Father, you know that if I had my hand on the pen, I would write a different story. But Father, I realize that you are the one who writes the best stories. Help me to surrender that to you. Help me to give that over to you in the lives of those that I love and I care about. Help me to give the pen over to you in my life as well. Father, I thank you that you're patient with us. You don't tell us to keep our emotions away from you. You say, bring them to me. Bring them to me. I'm the only one who can handle them. I'm the only one that can speak to them. I'm the only one who actually can give peace to those emotions. Thank you, Father, that you give us hope. Father, I pray as we approach this Easter, oh, I pray this would be the Easter that our brothers, our sisters, our children, our parents, our cousins would come to know this resurrected Savior. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.